probably one of the most practical letters in all the New Testament. And it's so practical because it's also so theological. James was uh, written by James, the younger and half-brother of Jesus. So this is Jesus' little brother's letter to uh, uh, Christians who had been scattered in the first century and who were going through various trials of many kinds. This morning we'll look at verses 13 through 18, which really looks at the theme of temptation. And then this evening we'll look at verses 16 through 27, which looks at the theme of deception. Temptation and deception go hand in hand. But they're not the only things in this passage that go hand in hand. Trials and temptations go hand in hand. So in verses 2 through 12, James has just said to to these Christians, consider it pure joy when you go through trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that they're for the testing of your faith in order to produce steadfastness. And they're divinely designed, James says, to make us mature in Christ. And then when he comes to verse 13... James transitions to speak about temptations from within. Trials and temptations are so closely connected. And and as a wise and perceptive pastor, James understood something that we too need to understand. If we are going to live a mature Christian life, the trials around us will prompt all manner of temptations within us. Thomas Brooks, the the Puritan, said it like this, times of affliction often prove times of great temptations. So maybe just think about some trials you've been through in life. Maybe a serious illness, maybe a messy family situation, maybe uh, a bad situation at work. You know that experience where in the midst of a trial you've been tempted to doubt God and his goodness, tempted to despair, drawn to spiritual despondency. More than that, tempted to succumb to the illicit desires of your heart. Believing the lie that if you just indulge yourself in a little sin, it will be, it will make the trial the more easier and bearable. Well, James, the wise pastor, knew that's the experience that many of us as Christians face. When trials come from without, all manner of temptations rise within. And so he wrote this section to help these Christians and you and I to know how we ought to respond to temptation. So we get three points this morning. Point number one, that the source of our temptation... Point number two, the process of temptation. And then finally, we'll think about how do we fight temptation? So the source of temptation. Now, in the English, it's not so clear or evident, but you know the word that's used in verses 2 through 12 for trial? Well, in the original, it's the exact same word that's used in verses 13 through 18 for temptations. So closely connected are these realities of trials and temptations, the Greek only has one word. 
It's the context that determines how it's rendered. Now, James has said in verses 2 through 12 that God has a hand in trials. He can use trials to test our faith, to produce steadfastness, and to make us mature and complete. But James is very quick to say in verse 13, listen, God has no hand in tempting anyone to evil. Look at what he says. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It may have been the case that James's original readers had wrongly come to believe these are so closely related realities. Well, if God's got a hand in the trials that are happening to me and he's using them for his good purposes, then if these temptations are rising in the midst of this trial, then surely he's responsible. But James is emphatic. No, temptations do not originate with God. He is never the source. Yes, he can and yes, he will test his people in times of trial. But God will never tempt his people. Why? Because God is perfect. Because God is holy. Because God is pure. Because God is literally impeccable. He's faultless. He is unable to sin. Everything in God, the Bible reveals, abhors evil. God is so holy, he cannot look upon evil. He's not the author of sin. Therefore, it would be an impossibility for God to tempt someone with evil. Indeed, far from God ever doing evil to his people, James is going to say in this passage, God is resolutely committed to the good of his people. How so? God is the source of every good and perfect gift. And church, where do we see that most clearly and most gloriously? But in the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is given to rescue us from sin and its punishment penalty. And presence. But you know, what I've said of God's character, it's not true of your character or my character. You see, we're not perfect. We're imperfect. We're not pure. We're impure. We're not all holy. We're unholy. We're not faultless. We are at fault because we are sinners by nature. Just look down at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. If you've got an NIV, it'll say by his own evil desire. The desire here is not a, a, a morally neutral desire. It's evil desire. And where does it exist? Within our hearts. Here's the uncomfortable truth that you and I need to face up to this morning. If you want to know the source of temptation in this context of trials, temptations that arise from within... It is from within our own heart. Wonder where James learned this. Well, his big brother Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, 
lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil evils come from within, says Jesus. But you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like to admit that. We, we actually tend to forget how sinful we are. We're amazed to think that we are so sinful. Actually, that reminds me of a story of a young trainee Roman Catholic priest. He was on the first day of his new job. And to make sure that things were being done properly, he was supervised by an older priest. On his first day, he was required to hear the confessions of various members in the church. But at the end of the day, the older priest took the younger priest aside and scolded him by saying, Father John, when a person finishes their confession, you must learn to say something other than, wow. (laughs) Here's the thing, sometimes we're shocked, aren't we, at the sinfulness of others? But listen, we should be shocked at the sinfulness of ourselves. All the seeds of evil are within our own hearts. But right from the beginning, it's been our propensity not to take responsibility for our sin. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They eat the forbidden fruit. They hide. God says, what have you done? Adam's response is, the woman that you put here, the woman that you gave me, she made me do it. Instantly, Adam's response is to blame Eve straight away. Not to take responsibility for his sin, not to admit his sin. And by the way, indirectly, do you know? notice what he also did? He also apportioned the blame to God, the woman you gave me. Eve says... Satan made me do it. He deceived me. You know, in a sense, she she was right. Satan is the tempter. But in James's passage here on temptation, Satan gets no mention. He'll be mentioned later on. We're to submit to the Lord and we're to resist the devil. But James wants to really hone into the fact that We have sinful hearts, and one of our problems is to fail to face up to this reality. Do you ever put the blame on other people, on your circumstances, even on God for your sin? Some of you you will know the name Joni Erickson Tada, very well-known American Christian author and speaker. She was paralyzed from the neck down following a diving accident. And in one of our books, she, she wrote, following her diving accident, sometimes lust or a bit of fantasizing would seem so inviting and so easy to justify. After all, she wrote, did my wheelchair entitle me to a little slack now and then? And then in her book, Joni asks this question, when God allows you to suffer, do you have a tendency to use your trials as an excuse for sinning? Verse 16, don't be deceived. One of of our problems is, is that we don't want to face up to the reality of who we are and the reality of our sinful hearts. 
Well, James begins by saying, listen, the source of temptation is from within our own hearts. Now in verses 14 and 15, he wants to say, let's look at the process of temptation. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own desire. This is a vivid hunting image to, to convey how sin works. Now, um, some have said that, that he's probably using a, a fishing illustration, you know, lured and enticed. I have no authority to speak on fishing. If Robert, who was preaching here last week, was here, he would say, Andy cannot speak on fishing. Because the last time I went fishing was in America, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And um, I cast my rod, and uh, in went the hook with the bait. I was getting bored, so I pulled out my rod, and quite literally, I caught a fish. But not with enticement or luring it away. I caught it as I, I drew the, the, the line back in by getting a hold of its tail and pulling out, right? Not the conventional way of fishing. So I'm not, I'm not an authority when it comes to fishing, but, but, but let me just try and indulge you for a moment. This, this is how fishing is supposed to work. You put the bait on the hook, you cast it in, and the whole purpose is you are trying to entice, trying to lure the fish. So the fish sees the bait, the, the, the juicy, fat, delicious worm or fly. And it's lured and it's enticed and so it darts over and it swallows it. And the fish discovers that it's been deceived for there's a hook. And instead of enjoying that anticipated pleasure of food, the fish is hooked, it's dragged, it's killed. And it itself is eaten by the fisherman. Well, Jesus, well, James is saying that's what happens in our hearts. That's what happens in our hearts. Our sinful desires lure us, entice us with things that appear attractive and full of pressure. And what is interesting, when we're in the throes of temptation, we feel that attraction. And you know what quickly happens? We lose our powers of discernment and sound decision making. You heard the name Malcolm Muggeridge. Well, when he was working as a journalist in India, he tells a story, and one evening he left his residence to go into a nearby river for a swim. As he entered the water, across the river he saw an Indian woman from a nearby village who'd come to bathe. And as the sun was setting, her her, her golden skin gleamed. Her, her figure looked beautiful. And Mugridge impulsively felt the allurement of the moment. The temptation stormed into his mind. He'd lived with a lustful struggle for years, but somehow he had fought it off in honor of his commitment to his wife, Kitty. On this occasion, however, he, he wondered if he could just cross the line of marital fidelity just once. He struggled just for a moment and then he swam furiously toward the woman, literally trying to outdistance his conscience. His mind fed him the fantasy that stolen waters would be sweet. He swam the harder for it. Now he was just two or three feet away from her and as he emerged from the water, any emotion that gripped him paled into insignificance when he compared it with the devastation that shattered him when he looked at her. This is what he wrote. 
She was old and hideous. Her skin was wrinkled. And worst of all, she was a leper. He wrote, this creature grinned at me, showing a toothless smile. Experience left Mugridge trembling and muttering under his breath. What a dirty woman. But then the rude shock dawned on him. It was not the woman who was dirty. It was his own heart. It was his own sinful desire that enticed and lured him away and deceived him. Sam Albury put it well when he wrote, we're both the agent and the victim of our own sinful desires. The sinful desires are our own, from our own hearts, yet it is them, it is they that attack us and entice us and lure us. We are our own worst enemy. Now, if that's a vivid image to try and show us a process of temptation, James uses another vivid image to convey where the process of temptation always leads. Verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, brings forth death. Now, notice that there are two births here. First, evil desire gives birth to sinful action. And then secondly, sinful action gives birth to death. Now, if if you stop and you're paying attention, there's something strange here. Conception produces what? Life. Birth reveals life. But here there's a reversal. Life is not born Sinful desires give birth to sinful actions, and sinful actions ultimately lead to death. James is in this vivid imagery because he wants to show us that that the gravity and the seriousness of temptation, this is where sin will lead you. It will lead you to spiritual death. Now, let's be honest just for a moment. When we go through the process of temptation, that thought never en- enters our minds. Where is this sin going to lead us to? You know, sometimes our problem is we never take seriously the sinful desires that lurk within our hearts. They often feel so harmless, they, they, so cozy, so like, like we, we downplay them. Let, let's just be really honest for a moment. Have you ever thought this? You'd have never said this out loud, but thought this. You know, if I just give in to this sinful desire, just this once, get this in my system, it'll go away and it'll leave me alone. You may have not said it, thought it like that, but the reality is we so often succumb to our sinful desires. But here's the thing, it's never the case that we'll get it out of our system. The thing with sinful desires, when it conceives, it gives birth to sinful actions which grow stronger like a baby, and when it's fully grown, it's death. It's spiritual death. Someone said it like this, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Sin never stops where you want it to. 
It always takes you further into things that you never imagined you'd ever do. And, and for those of us who are Christians, sin truly wrecks havoc in our spiritual lives, doesn't it? Paralyzes our praise, robs us of our sense of peace with God, disturbs, disturbs our communion with God, steals the joy of our salvation, weakens our spiritual appetites and affections, unsettles the assurance of our salvation. And James is a wise pastor. He gives this very vivid image because he wants to say, listen, sin is deadly serious. So, so James has said, okay, if you want to know the source of temptation, it's in your heart. If you want to know the process of temptation, it'll happen so fast, you'll get the attraction, you'll lose your faculties, you'll make the decision. And if you're not careful, if you allow it to grow, it will ultimately lead you to death. Verse 16 again, do not be deceived. Temptation and deception go hand in hand. But you know what also goes hand in hand? If we face up to who we truly are, we also need to face up to who God is. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know the antidote to temptation and sin? It's knowing how good God is. I've informed us that our evil da- of the evil desires and temptations that spring up from within, James now draws our attentions to the good gifts that come down from above, from our good God. You ever thought about the first sin in the Garden of Eden? What did Satan do to deceive Eve? He got her to doubt God's words. Did God really say that? He got her to believe the lie that God was withholding back something good from her. And you know, when we sin, that's the exact same problem that we go through. We believe the lie that God is not good. And that we can find something better elsewhere. Some pleasure, some delight that will fulfill us in the moment. We don't take God's word seriously, that sin is deadly. Now James stresses here, but listen, if you want to face, if you want to fight, if you want to deal with temptation, you need to know how good your God is. Every good, every perfect gift comes from him. He's the father of light. You know, you know, so often when I, when I, when I think of my, the, the church in Malawi, I hear this refrain, God is good all of the time. Maybe you've heard a brother or sister say that. God is good all of the time. We don't say that enough to ourselves. Do you know how we know God is good all of the time? There is no shadow change. There's no variation with God. He does not change. He is good always. He's unchanging and he's eternal and he's good all of the time to all of his people. How do we know the goodness of God? Well, we've tasted and we've proved the goodness of God in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the perfect gift for sinners. 
the one who wants to restore us to relationship with God, who wants to give us the joy of his salvation, the one who makes us new. In fact, look what verse 18 says. James has just reminded us God's not just good. He's just reminded us God is good. Now he wants to remind us that God is also gracious. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So previously he's been using this image of birth, right? Sinful desires gives birth to sinful action. And then his sinful action gives birth to death. Well, now he uses another image of birth, and it's the new birth. James, again, where's he heard about the new birth from his big brother, Jesus? God's gracious gift to his people. The amazing thing about the new birth is we didn't deserve it, we didn't merit it, we didn't earn it. God graciously bestowed it upon us. How did it come about? James says, by the word of truth. That's fascinating, right? Listen, this is how important the word of God is. And listening and obeying it is. We succumb to temptation because we listen and we obey our evil desires. We come to salvation because we listen and we obey the gospel of Jesus. What does a new birth do? It gives us a new heart with new affections. It gives us new desires. By his Holy Spirit, God works this amazing work of transformation in us. He makes us new. In fact, look at what James says. The result of the new birth is that we should be a kind of first fruits. I don't know if you know what that means. You know, when a, uh, the first fruits refers to the initial batch of a farmer's crop proves and guarantees that the rest of the harvest is now on its way. Listen, here's the amazing thing. Our new life in Christ is just the beginning of what God is up to. Our new life in Christ is just a little flavor of what is to come. There's coming a day when we will be new. No longer sin, no longer suffer, no longer experience death. We will not be able to sin. Now, you might be sitting here and say, okay, I get that glorious truth of who God is and the gospel is. But here's my question, Andy. How do I face temptation that greets me day in, day out? How do I face that habitual sin that I struggle with? The thing I do not want to do, I find myself doing. The thing I do not want to do, I find myself doing. Well, let me get practical for a moment. If I could put it in a pithy line, I'd steal it from Robert Murray McChain and I'd say, the answer is, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. If you want to know how to fight your sin, this is what McChain says, you need to let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ and all that is in him. You need to let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there will be no room for folly, the world, Satan, or the flesh. The remedy to fighting temptation is the expulsive power of a new affection. Thomas Chalmers McChain's mentor preached that sermon, the expulsive power of a new threat. Let, let, let me say, let me just give you a line that Chalmers said. 
If you want to know how to break the hold of a beautiful object that you find yourself attracted to, you need to show an object even more beautiful. If you want to break the hold of an object that you find beautiful, you need to find an object even more beautiful. Answer, if you want to break the hold of sin which lures you and entices you, promises you pleasure, but it's actually deceiving you, it's going to kill you, rob you of your joy, steal your peace, paralyze your praise, then you need to open your eyes wide open to Jesus Christ. You need to look at him, the everlasting treasure of your soul. Now, now let's try and illustrate this with a really silly illustration, but it will make the point. There's a little boy who spent all his time in his bedroom gaming all day long. And um, his parents tried to do everything to coax him to stop gaming as much, to get him to come downstairs and do other things. But the boy just would not change. So they tried to punish him. didn't work. They tried to remove it from him. didn't work. Nothing seemed to work. Until all of a sudden, he started to play less on his game console. He started going out a lot. Now, what do you think happened? Let me tell you what happened. He met a pretty girl in his neighborhood. And he started to fall in love. He wanted to be with her. He wanted to hear her voice. He wanted to see her beautiful face. He wanted to hold her hand. He wanted to spend all the time he had with her. How did he overcome his pleasure of gaming? Was it by his parents' prohibition? Was it by his parents' threats and punishment? No, it was by an even greater pleasure. Now, listen, do not mishear me. My point in this illustration is not if you want to get your kid off gaming, then get him a girlfriend. (laughs) My point is if you want to get your soul and your heart off sinning, fix it firmly On the Lord Jesus Christ. Be captured by him. An even greater pleasure. Delight than anything this world affords. He is our great. Good God. And saviour. Let's pray. Hmm. Loving heavenly father. We thank you for this time of your word and we pray that as we sang in Psalm 119 we would hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you Lord as we face up to who we are we are more sinful than we've ever dared to imagine and even admit all the seeds of evil are within our own hearts we lure and entice ourselves away and so we pray that you would govern our hearts with the goodness of who you are and with the pleasures that are in your right hand. We thank you for one of the greatest promises you've given us in your word. No temptation that has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. And God, you are faithful and will not allow anyone to be tempted beyond what they're able. But you will always provide the way of escape that we might endure it. Thank you for providing Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes firmly on him by your spirit. 
fill every chamber of our soul with love for him and with longing to be in his presence. And we pray this in his precious and powerful name. Amen.